reading from Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 to 2, and then from 11 to 26. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Jesus stood before Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was a governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas? or Jesus who is called the Messiah. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they all shouted the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. We're continuing with Matthew 27, um, from verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, 
but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they had placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Hi, uh, our third reading is from Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 to 56. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with one vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was was torn in two, From top to bottom, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his knees. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. This is the word of Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning everybody, my name is John Forsyth, or Uh, If you're Alex, John Vicker, I like that. I'm going to change my business card afterwards. Staying apart keeps us together. Well, not really. They were the somewhat ironic words that greeted us uh, almost a year ago, actually. And it's interesting how those words throughout time have become far more ironic, I think, than they had perhaps initially intended. We're all in this together, except if you're in a different state, in which case, or in a different hot zone, in which case you're not in this together. Once again, words that were initially meant to be words that brought us together, ironically, became words 
that pulled us apart. Irony is a very interesting concept. It's when we use words that would normally mean the opposite to what was being said to mean something else entirely. And one of the great ironies is, of course, today. We call the death of an innocent man good. We call the day on which the death of an innocent man occurred Good Friday. Now, of course, sometimes irony is intentional. But other times people are actually unaware that their words are ironic or their actions are ironic until the harsh truth is revealed later. Sometimes irony is humorous. Sometimes it is vicious. For example, the Chinese invented gunpowder thinking it was the elixir of life. But irony also has the potential to bring a situation into sharp and clear focus, especially in a story, in a narrative. It can highlight a dimension of depth and colour that would otherwise be missed. And Matthew, who has written this gospel, this story of Jesus' life, uses irony in an extremely powerful way in this narrative around Jesus' death. And what Matthew does is he does this to really draw our attention and to focus on what is really happening on this so-called Good Friday. How can we call the darkest day in human history good? Well, the story so far in in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been ministering in the public eye for about three years And during this time, he's become very controversial. He's fallen foul of the religious and political authorities. They resent his popularity. They're suspicious of his motives. And they plot his death. They provide this kangaroo court to find Jesus guilty of treason. And they managed to convince the local Roman governor to sanction his execution by crucifixion. And we pick up the story after the sentence of death has been passed. Now back in Jesus' day, by the way, there's no death row. There's no appeal to a higher court. If you were sentenced to death, the execution occurred usually within hours, if not that day, perhaps the next day at the latest. And so we find the soldiers preparing Jesus for immediate crucifixion. But as Matthew tells us this story, through the words of those around Jesus, what we see are some deep and ironic truths revealed to us about who this Jesus is. And the first irony we see is that this man, mocked as king, is the king. The man mocked as king is the king. In fact, the king of kings. We read in verse 26 that Jesus was flogged. That was standard practice. But what happens in verses 27 to verses 31 is not standard practice. Jesus is stripped. 
and they put a scarlet robe on him and they twist together some strands of vine thorns which have vicious sharp spikes and they push and shove it onto his head to make a cruel and painful crown. They put a staff in his hand and they pretend it's a scepter and they mock him with fake reverence while they spit and hit him again and again and again. Hail, King of the Jews! But when they finish their mocking, they take him out to be crucified. But the mocking doesn't stop there. It continues in verse 37. Above Jesus, as we have on our cross here, there was a spot where you would place the charge of the criminal. Why were they being executed? And the charge written for all to see was this... This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That is the reason for his execution. And in verse 42, the leaders of Israel mock him. (laughs) Here's the King of Israel. But you see, behind those words sit a very deep, ironic truth. Jesus truly is their King. Jesus truly is our king. The man they mock as king really is the king of kings. In fact, we go right back to the beginning. From the opening sentence of Matthew's gospel, we are told that Jesus descends from the greatest king in Israel's history, King David. And all the Old Testament promises pointed to an even greater king, a son of David, who would be the true and ultimate king of the Jews. And even in Jesus' show trial, the only words that Jesus utters is to confirm this truth. When Pilate asked Jesus in verse 11 of chapter 27, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus simply says, you have said so. But Jesus is not a king in any way. Pilate fears. Jesus' reign is not a military threat to Caesar or Rome. In fact, it's far bigger. On this side of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, it's clear that Jesus declares that his authority is over all of heaven and all of earth and all that there is. Jesus' authority is none other than the authority of God himself. He is the king over the universe. He is the king over the soldiers who mock him. He is the king over those who call for his death. And he is your king. And he is my king. But what type of king is he? Now, the reality is that for most of us, our ideas of kingship for better or for worse, are shaped by the constitutional monarchy and particularly the British royal family. That's kind of our model of kingship. And I would argue that the only real authority the British royal family have is to get an interview with Oprah. That's about the limit of their authority. Controversial, maybe, but hardly terrifying. But in Jesus' day, kings were absolute monarchs. 
They reigned and it was terrifying. They decided and it happened. But what kind of king goes to a cross to be killed? A failed king? A weak king? Someone who perhaps is not a king at all? As we read uh, Matthew's Gospel, it's clear that Jesus is not a failed king, but indeed a radical king with a radical kingship. Just a few chapters earlier, in Matthew 20, there is a dispute amongst Jesus' followers, his disciples, about who gets the best place in Jesus' kingdom. The king is coming. You want to be ready there to take the best, to get the spoils, to get the gold? And so Jesus calls them together. And he gives them an extremely powerful insight into the nature of his own kingship. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. You can imagine the disciples nodding expectantly, waiting, yes. Not so with you, says Jesus. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See what Jesus is saying, and it's so relevant. He's saying the rulers of our world, the kings of this world, they exercise their authority with a deep and profound sense of selfishness and entitlement. But by contrast, King Jesus exercises his authority not to seek his own good, not so people would serve him, but but radically the complete opposite. Here is a king who's come not to be served, but to serve. But just imagine that Queen Elizabeth II had decided on a whim, through all the COVID restrictions, to come to your place for dinner next week. Exciting, right? You're amused, you're excited, she's coming. And what would you get your house ready? You'd clean, you'd get the best food, you'd scrub up, make sure you've got new clothes. But what happens, you come home a little early and you find the Queen's already arrived. And it's a bit awkward, right? Because you haven't had time to clean the house. But yet, you find her doing the vacuuming. And she's already cleaned both your toilets. You go, hang on a second, there's something not quite right here. That's not what royalty does. But it is what Jesus does. He doesn't come to be served, but to serve. And forget cleaning the toilets. He actually gives his life to his subjects in rebellion to him as a ransom to win them back. What an extraordinary king. See, ironically, friends, it is on this cross that Jesus reigns as king. And so the question for you this morning is, is he your king? Is he your king? Well, the second irony we we come across as we go through this passage together 
is from verse 32 onwards, where we see that a man who is utterly uh, powerless is truly powerful. As Jesus walks towards the cross, what we have before us is a picture of a man who is utterly broken and powerless. Now, in Jesus' time, the, the upright part of the cross was usually kept in the ground at one point. In fact, there would have been a number of them at one point, at a place of execution, in a very public place as a warning. Don't cross us, or we'll cross you, literally. And the horizontal path would have been carried by the victim to the place of execution, and they'd be nailed to that horizontal part. But Jesus is so weak and so powerless He actually cannot even carry that crossbeam to his place of execution. So brutal has his beating been. And so Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry it for him. And as the narrative continues, we see Jesus utterly helplessly nailed to the cross, surrounded by soldiers and enemies. It is difficult to imagine a portrait of a more powerless man. He has no hope. There is no chance of rescue. He has suffered immeasurably. He's been shamed intolerably. He's broken in body and spirit. He is utterly powerless. And on top of this comes the mockery. In verses 39 and 40, well, you said you were going to build the temple, and, uh, sorry, build, the, and, uh, build and destroy the temple. And, sorry, let's try that again. You were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from that cross if you are the son of God. They're saying, look, if you're really powerful, if you really are God's son, then getting off the cross should be easy. You've got the power to do that. Jesus had earlier claimed in chapter 26 that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it. Surely that's easy to do if you're God's son. Come on, show us. Use your so-called power. In fact, the very fact that Jesus had said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it had actually been brought up at his trial because under Roman law, it was a capital offence to desecrate any temple. The Romans are terrified about religious uprisings in their empire, so... Everyone plays by the same rules. Be nice to each other. Don't touch the temple. But Jesus had claimed, look, not only will I destroy the temple, but rebuild it in three years. Look, God's people had been rebuilding the temple for 46 years and it would take another 30 or so years to finish it. I mean, we thought the St. Jude's rebuilding project took a while. This is, this is a 40, uh, sorry, 76 years of work. I can do that in three days. That's an extraordinary claim to power. What kind of power can do that? And the only answer is supernatural power. Yet Jesus hangs helpless on a Roman cross. He has claimed so much power, yet seems to exhibit nothing but powerlessness. And so, of course, they mock him. But the irony is, of course, that Jesus' power is actually most acutely shown on that powerless cross. 
to understand what Jesus was saying when he referred to the temple, we need to understand he was actually speaking in a metaphor. He was speaking about himself. See, what the temple was, was the meeting place between a holy and righteous and terrifying God and sinful people. It was the place of sacrifice where the atonement for sins were made. And what Jesus was doing by using the temple as an image, as a metaphor, was saying, look, my death, the destruction of the temple, and my resurrection three days later, the rebuilding of the temple, he's saying, I am the place where you'll be reconciled to God. I will be that sacrifice that happens in the temple again and again and again, but with me it'll just be once and it'll be perfect and it'll be right. Jesus is the true temple, the meeting place between a holy and righteous and terrifying God and a sinful people. Which means we do not simply preach Christ, but we preach Christ crucified. Because it's not just in his incarnation that he's being born that Jesus becomes the temple for us but most powerfully and truly in his death and resurrection. And it is here that the powerful irony of the cross lies before us once more. Jesus is mocked and laughed at for staying on the cross in weakness. Yet it is ironically by precisely staying on that cross in abject powerlessness, that Jesus actually establishes himself as the temple. He fulfills that prophecy. And it come, when it comes to the resurrection, we see all this power made evident and manifest to all. In the very words the mockers use, the insults and the condescending sneers actually describe what is taking place. They actually describe the powerful plan of God. The weaknesses the, mock, the mockers find amusing is actually Jesus' way to power, his resurrection. If anyone wants to follow after me, says Jesus, he says, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Do you follow the way of the cross? Well, our third irony is in verses 41 to 42, where we see that the man who can't save himself saves others the man who can't save himself save others the mockery continues in verses 41 and 42 where we read that in the same way the chief priests the teachers of the law and the elders mock Jesus he saved others he can't save himself he's the king of Israel let him come down now from the cross and, and we'll believe in him that's all he has to do When the mockers speak of Jesus saving others, what they mean is they have seen Jesus save others. They have seen Jesus heal the sick, 
cast out demons, feed the hungry, raise the dead. Yet he can't even save himself from being killed. He's a, he's a failed saviour. But the mockers fail to recognise the extraordinary, powerful irony in their words. If Jesus is to save others, he cannot save himself. If he is to save others, he cannot save himself. Once again, if we go right back to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, God tells Joseph that Mary will give birth to a son and she is to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus is a Greek name and the Hebrew equivalent is the name Joshua. And it simply means God saves. So right at the beginning of Jesus' mission, we, we know what it is. He has been born to save his people from their sins. And as we go through Matthew's gospel, we see this, this thread woven throughout the whole story. Jesus is the saviour. But of course, we're left with a question, well, what kind of saviour is executed? In the eyes of those around him, it seems like a failed one. An unsaved saviour. What is the use of a dead hero? Corpses don't save anybody. But of course, the reality is that the only way Jesus could save others is by not saving himself. Now, Jesus could not save himself, not because there was any physical constraint. The nails, the soldiers... None of these things could stand in the way of the powerful Son of God. Jesus could not save himself because of his obedience to his Father's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he is crucified, he cries out after deep and anguished prayer, Not my will, but yours be done. And the will of God was to send his Son to die in our place in order to save us. See, friends, do you know what held the Lord Jesus on the cross? It was not the nails. It was his love for you and me. It was not the nails. It was his love for you and me. See, friends, the only way for us to be saved, to be reconciled to God, to be restored to the one who creates us and loves us, to be freed from guilt and judgment and death, is to have someone perfect die in our place, bear the punishment that we deserve. And so the only way that we can be saved is because the Lord Jesus, out of his love for you and me, chose not to save himself. Jesus died our death so we could live his life. To destroy the barrier between us and God. And we know this, in the moment Jesus breathes his last in verse 51, 
the curtain in the temple, which was a symbol of the separation between a holy and righteous and terrifying God and sinful humanity, is ripped in two. The barrier is gone from top to bottom. It's an act of God. See, friends, Jesus did not save himself so he could save you and he could save me. That is the irony of the cross. That's why we call this Friday Good Friday. Cicero was a great Roman philosopher and politician and lawyer. It's a bit of a heady mix when you put those three things together. But he spoke about the cross. Cicero said, the cross is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. There is no fitting word that can describe so horrible a deed. The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from their thoughts, from their eyes, and from their ears. But friends, we must never remove the cross from our thoughts, from our eyes, or from our ears. Indeed, it is indeed a horrible deed, but it is still Good Friday. It is still good news. And so we have the audacity to say, contra Cicero, the cross is good news. Today is Good Friday. Our Saviour and Lord has died for us. The most powerful king on this universe has given his life that we might live. In spite of our rebellion and failure and guilt and sin, we have new life for our king has died.